From the social science data, we know that Americans today aren't as religiously committed as we once were. Americans who identify as non-religious was pretty stable at 7% for, for as long as we ever measured it, until 1991. And then it started shooting up and just really has doubled, and it, we're up to 23 plus, maybe 25% now. So the question is why? There are all kinds of reasons for that. Some, including the end of the Cold War in 1991, and a different kind of geopolitical struggle that started in 2001, as Chris Smith describes in this podcast. Another dynamic in contemporary society is about trust, whether we can trust our political leaders, or our religious leaders, or even those who give us the daily news. Is journalism in contemporary America less objective, less just the facts than it once was? We might ask ourselves whether the political news served up in feeds reinforced by algorithms end up being more like a form of entertainment or politattainment, primarily reinforcing our existing biases and the country's squarely divided politics. Listen to the other side, Who has time for that? As the old joke goes, listening for today's Americans should perhaps more accurately be defined as waiting your turn to speak. That's precisely what makes today's podcast conversation so timely. It gathers a scholar and a journalist of quite different points of view, and they truly engage. They actually listen. Will Salatin of Slate Magazine is a self-described agnostic and a curious skeptic of Jewish heritage who's as brilliant as he is prolific. In 2003, Will wrote the book Bearing Right, a book about the abortion wars, and he's since authored more than 2,500 blog entries and published articles at Slate and elsewhere. Christian Smith is a sociology professor at University of Notre Dame who's written 20 books prior to this year publishing Atheist Overreach, what atheism can't deliver. Because Chris is tenured and also a kind of senior statesman in today's sociology circles, in some ways, this book was a surprise. Most of his early works are substantively looking at the practices and habits of people and communities and religious practitioners. Yet this book engages philosophical and even theological argument. It emerges from Chris's modest and curious watching from the sidelines as a Catholic and seeing the arguments of the so-called new atheists gaining traction in the last two decades. His four short essays in the book are written for a general reader to offer a modest, focused critique of these increasingly popular atheist claims. Can we be good without God? Does society need religion to prop up the long-term human dignity and equality that today's atheists insist upon? Or is there another foundation? The conversation you're about to hear is refreshing because it's honest, two-way, and provocative. Hope you enjoy. Chris, welcome. So tell me a little bit about your book. First of all, tell me what was it that made you want to write about the overreach of atheist philosophers? I'm glad to be here. Thank you. And it's clear that not just Western Europe, but in the United States, there's a growing movement of people who identify as non-religious. And since the early 2000s, there have been a number of forceful writers and thinkers who have been advocating for atheism and that we'd have a better world if religious people and institutions had less influence and maybe just went away. So that just got me thinking about, well, for example, the first half of the book is about morality and atheism. So it got me thinking about 
what kind of world would, would we be justified in, in instituting in laws and institutions and teaching our children and such, morally speaking, if we all just dispensed with this idea of God or karma, super empirical realities? It just got me reading, and, th and, and the more I read, the more I thought, well, there's some interesting stuff here, but some of it I'm not persuaded by. It doesn't add up. So I thought I could use an interactive challenge. So you went in with an open mind as to whether they could support their conclusions. I actually would prefer, if it was the case, because of my great-great-grandchildren and the kind of world they'll live in, I would prefer if it was the case that we didn't have to rely on religion to keep a good humanistic civilization going. And by that I mean commitments to universal dignity, equality, and human rights. And you're not really dealing in this book with the atheist critique of religion. It's really the affirmative atheist case for a non-religious morality. Yeah. So the book focuses on certain claims of some atheists. It's not all atheism. Obviously, there's diversity. But it focuses on certain claims of some atheists about morality. And then it moves on to talking about claims about what science can demonstrate or not about religion's truth. And then at the end, it, it gets into human nature. Like, are we naturally religious? Is this something we could sort of set aside like a, an overcoat? Or, or is it something that's sort of embedded in human being? Yeah. Now, there are three things that I read in the book that I really, really liked. I'm going to throw them at you. You can run with any one of them. Okay, thank you. Softballs you. off the bat. One was I really agreed with and enjoyed the takedown of the conceit of the atheist moralists as to what they can rationally prove on the basis of science or reason or their sort of their secular ideas. Secondly, the way that they in reality have smuggled their own upbringings into their ideas, which are in some cases religious, maybe in all cases somewhat religious, but an inheritance of culture that they're passing off as some intellectual thing out of nothing. And the third thing was their naivete about human nature, that humans are basically good and all we have to do is work with that essentially positive material we're given and we'll be able to construct a healthy society. Do you want to just explain a little of either one of those? Well, it makes me happy to hear that. I mean, first of all, and to be clear more broadly, the book is not an argument against atheism per se. The book is agnostic about whether atheism is correct or not. And in some sense is saying, hey, if atheism was correct, let's make sure we think really clearly and, and have good defensible arguments for the implications of that. So just, it's not a work of religious uh, apologetics. It's really just taking a set of people to task on a, on a few set of arguments. But a lot of them are around what you just said. Yeah, that I find atheists, which to be kind of have too rosy a view of human nature, the ones I'm talking about, which is which is very strange to me because I'm old enough to have a different image of your typical atheist, which is sort of a rational, philosophically, like really demanding, hard-nosed, skeptical, just the facts kind of orientation to life. And then some of the atheists I'm reading today have this seemingly strike me as wishful thinking in their effort to deliver we can have a good world without God. It just seems like they're in, some of them are engaging in uh, motivated reasoning to pay attention to the evidence that will support what they want to say and ignore the rest of it. That's not how I've always thought about atheists. I've always thought atheists were these really the most rigorous thinkers, you know, pushing us against what we would like to be the case. So it was just an odd experience to read this material. So uh, in the book, you draw a distinction between a very robust morality mm -hmm. that can that requires a, m higher levels of justification and a fairly sort of 
modest morality of just basically treating kindly the people that you live with directly. You argue that atheism can't supply the the more robust level of morality. And I thought that was interesting. As I was reading, I kept wanting to offer as an alternative to the atheist philosophers, who I agreed with your critique of them, but I kept wanting to offer as an alternative not a lower level of moral expectation, but a softer kind of argument. That is to say, to the extent that they think they can logically deduce certain moral behaviors or or cause moral behaviors through compelling, I think you use the term like rationally compelling, rationally convincing, Mm -hmm. a very strong level of justification. And I thought to myself, in my life, that's not how my morality is. It really isn't. I don't, I didn't learn morality that way as far as I know. I don't teach it to my kids that way. Mm -hmm. I don't practice it in my life that way. I feel like I learn morality thematically, not logically. Mm -hmm. And so... Like one of the problems that you highlight is the problem of how how can you universalize morality? Oh, sure, you treat the people around you who look like you and have your language and so forth. You treat them well, but why would you treat somebody all around the other side of the world that way? And I thought, well, it's by inference, isn't it? It's by sort of that you don't live with that person. Maybe they're not the same color as you. Maybe not the same sex as you. But they're like you. They're like the people you know and love. So, I mean, how would you answer that if, the, if that's the way we actually think and learn morally? Yeah. So, well, on the very last point, I just point out before I give a more general answer, other human beings are like us and they're unlike us. Human beings have just as much capacity to create others and to, and to think badly of others and to, and to have a different standards of what others deserve. That may even be a stronger tendency in human beings sometimes than than the sort of the universalizing impulse. So uh, just just to keep the otherness and the difference on the table in addition to our, our common humanity. It's absolutely true that a premise running in the background of my argument is that we need to have good reasons in the long run for our moral systems and the institutions that embody and to perpetuate them. That is vulnerable to the critique that I'm too cerebral, that it's too intellectualist. My view is that there's a difference in the ability to to pass on moral traditions in the short run and in the long run. In the short run, you can tell a child, well, because it's right, how are they going to feel, et cetera, et cetera. But moral traditions are also embedded in laws. They're also embedded in social institutions, school systems. In some ways, our whole society is the instantiation of a moral outlook and moral commitments. So the question is, which over the long run, which of those are we really committed to, especially when morality is costly? It demands sacrifice of me. It's going to hurt me in some way. So I think in the long run, my premise is in the long run, you do have to be able to explain, here's why we have this law. Here's why we do things this way. Here's why we're willing to sacrifice or take a hit for what's right and good, even if it's not in our obvious self-interest in some sense. Okay, so I really like that word, explain. We do have to be able to explain it. And I know from my experience talking to my kids, yeah, you do have to explain it. But explanation is kind of a complicated thing, right? I mean, sometimes it's a logical explanation. And sometimes there's logic to it, but it is a thematic explanation. It is, let's take your original point about us and them. And of course, there's nothing clearer in history than us and them and the, the hatred that people can develop for others and can be taught to develop for others. So how is it that we learn to think of somebody not as them, but as us? And it 
feels to me, and if I can recall from memory, that the way we actually do is through identification. And I think now I'm forgetting the name of two of the philosophers they were writing together about the idea that we radiate, we start with loving the people close to us and we learn, we gradually radiate outward that morality to others. So when we, when we explain to people, to our kids, for example, that they should see people they used to see as them, as us, the explanation isn't strictly logical, is it? It's, you can do it in religious terms. You can say they're made in the image of God, but there is a sort of non-God way of saying it, isn't there? That we are of the same, we have dignity, they have dignity, they're like us. It's a kind of ex- personal extrapolation. So I guess I'm just asking whether when we say that the norms have to be explainable or the morals have to be mm-hmm. explainable, that can encompass a thematic and an extrapolatory way of explaining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Part of my answer is I'm very sympathetic to that insofar as I think humans have a lot of different capacities and a lot of them are positive. Two of the positive ones are empathy. Like I just think that in human beings to be capable of empathy and empathy seems to be it's an emotional thing. It's more than a rational thing. And it seems to be the basis upon which we're able to, for example, teach children, think about how they would feel. Think about if you were in their place. And in general, I'm sympathetic to Adam Smith's from Theory of Moral Sentiments this idea that we're capable of pretty strong feelings about what seems right or wrong and so on. But we also know empathy has limits. Empathy has limits. And it goes back to this other and the capacity to learn that they're the enemy, that they're threatening. And so we need institutions and laws and traditions and practices and ways of life that form our natural moral sentiments in this direction instead of that direction in, say, universal rather than tribal directions. And I I continue to go back to when it becomes costly, we need to be able to explain to ourselves, not even our children, ourselves, like, why is it I'm going to pay these taxes? Why is it that that my government is sending relief efforts to wherever? I agree with you, but I think there are limits to that. And if we really are invested in dignity, we better found those on solid foundations and not and not just hope they hold up. The other thing is what you said, you mentioned we have dignity. That's not a human universal itself. I mean, that's a particular kind of commitment. A lot of civilizations have never recognized that. We could say it was true, but they didn't recognize it. So it takes a very particular kind of teaching or commitment to understand dignity, that it's a fact, if it is indeed a fact. And a lot of people would like to deny it, more than I think here in Washington, D.C., we probably would accept out in the world, don't take for granted that people are committed to dignity universally. Uh, would you concede that to the extent that you believe in natural empathy, that you believe in natural moral sentiments, and that that's the raw material that religion or any other moral system is working with, would you concede that you are something of a naturalist? Yeah. I mean, I'm very friendly to Aristotelianism, so that's grounded totally in nature. We're a certain kind of animal. We're a certain kind of creature. It gets a little different from naturalism when it says we have a telos, we have an end, our telos is, is happiness in a, in a eudemonistic sense. But I'm not a sort of a like, we're neutral, we're blank slates, and then out of the sky drops the Ten Commandments and you better follow them. I think it's really grounded in what's good for human beings, what's functional, what kind of animals we are. 
but partly the kind of animals we are is we need to understand why we're going to do things that are hard. I really like Aristotle, and I'm really interested in that you like Aristotle uh-huh. because I think of Aristotle as a non-religious way of explaining morality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you? I don't think Aristotle was an atheist, but I think Aristotle can be translated in purely secular terms and worked out in purely secular terms. I think the consequences of Aristotle, though, are if you really follow Aristotle somewhat closely, you lose the universalism, you lose the commitment to equality, and it's not even clear you can come up with dignity. He certainly thought took slavery for granted, and he didn't think of women as equal to men. So... And it's certainly not universalistic. Maybe the most well-developed virtues could get you to be sort of have universal benevolence for all human beings. But for the most part, your virtue should be magnanimity, which is a different matter. So, like, I'm friendly to Aristotle, and I think it's probably the best, actually, that the atheistic metaphysics can come up with, or a secular, a really secular world can operate with. And I think it's a pretty decent society if everyone was Aristotelian, but it doesn't end up with what I'm calling the high demanding moral system. Aristotle don't think delivers that either. Now, Aristotle wrote a long time ago. Yes. And can, since then, Aristotelians of various kinds in the Catholic Church and outside have developed Aristotle. Yeah. So it's possible to take Aristotle and you can be Thomistic, right? And, right. and a Catholic, say. It has grown. It has evolved. It has mm-hmm. elaborated in a more universal direction. Mm-hmm. Isn't the same true of religion? Isn't it true of the original Judaism that the monotheism of Judaism and Christianity has evolved over time? Clearly. I mean, I'm a sociologist. I see everything in historical, institutional, developmental terms. So, yes. Just because something has changed historically, though, doesn't mean it's true or false. So, one of my frustrations as I was reading this was I didn't want to defend Sam Harris and those guys. I didn't want to defend what I think of as uh, overwrought, oversold claims about what can rationally be proved from nothing. But I did want to defend an alternative to the idea that religion is necessary to the foundation mm-hmm. of morality. And I I wanted to compare the atheist morality to the religious morality. And that's not really what you set out to do in the book. You said, I'm not going to do an, a Christian mm-hmm. apologetics mm-hmm. here. But it left me wondering whether Christianity or any religion can pass the rather strict rash- tests of rationality that you're applying to mm-hmm. atheist morality. Mm-hmm. Okay, so two things. Let me just clarify this in case the listeners don't get this. I am not claiming in this book that atheists can't be moral. I say up front, I know lots of atheists who are moral. They may be more moral than a lot of religious people. It's like atheists can be moral. It goes back to this. An atheist can practice, in fact, empirically do this high standard of morality. My focus is on whether that's justified, whether they could defend it, whether they have good reason for it, or if they're just doing it. It just so happens, whether they convince the reasonable skeptic. Okay, so that's the first thing. I don't want anyone to think I'm arguing, if you're atheist, you're going to be this sort of anything-goes immoralist. So back to your question, I would say two things about that. Empirically, we know historically, and religious people who are religious apologists shouldn't try to squirm out of this. Routinely, religious people do not live up to their own standards. There's moral failure all over in religious traditions and religious histories and in religious people. That much is perfectly clear. I think what I would argue is religions, whether or not they're true or not, ontologically, metaphysically, religions do provide certain cultural resources in their scriptures as they've been elaborated that atheism doesn't have. It just, for example, the doctrine, all of humanity is made in God's image. The doctrine 
again, whether it's true, it's a separate issue. But in Jesus Christ and the Incarnation, God unified God's self with all of humanity. That in the teaching, the last shall be first. We should, you should care most about the poor. In ancient Hebrew prophets saying, if you don't have justice, it's outrageous. You must take care of the widows. You must take... Like, I think there are resources in scriptures and traditions that are religiously particularistic. They're grounded in a certain belief about the way reality is and the way, say, a God is in the case of the Abrahamic tradition. Or take karma. I mean, if it's true, whether or not it's true, if it's true, you can't escape it. Like, you can't secretly break the rules and get away with it. And that's rooted in a particular religious outlook that some religions share that I think if we live in an atheistic, metaphysically, if that's our reality... It's not clear how to derive equality. Like You don't have the same resources. You may be able to invent them. I'd love to hear arguments for it. But if there's nothing extra empirical that exists, it's just what is actual and empirical. Empirically, the obvious thing is inequality. Empirically, the obvious thing is lack of dignity in human existence and experience. It's... It's our limitations to care about other people. It's our limitations to—we can barely take care of ourselves and our families is the empirical reality. So I do think there are differences. That's not to say, oh, religions have all the answers. If, you, if everyone would sign up to be religious, everything would be great. I'm not, not making those claims at all, but I do think that religions do have some cultural resources for moral systems that atheism doesn't. As I'm listening to you, I keep wanting to resist and in this form. Okay. <laughs> okay. So my resistance is I bristling at the polarization. Uh-huh. Things are either objective or they're subjective. They're either spiritual or they're purely material. Okay. And I'm not sympathetic to the purely material view of the world or mm-hmm, the empty, mm-hmm. sort of this kind of empty, can't get anything out of emptiness. But in my gut, I feel like, and I think I could point to experiences in my life where without framing them in religious terms— even if I'm influenced by religion, as these atheist moralists are, I can construct very similar resources to what mm-hmm. you're describing. Now, can I do it alone? No, you need a culture, right? But ideas like we're all made in God's image, that's a religious way of expressing it, but I think the same thing could be constructed without using reference to God. You would have to refer to something that is, I'm struggling for the word, I'm really trying hard not mm-hmm. to use the word divine, <laughs> but something that is profound, majestic in human beings. The idea of God unified in man, that there is something higher in us, something transcendent in us. So I'm buying into ideas of transcendence, and I'm buying that there is some dimension of our lives that is not purely empirical, as you mm-hmm. called it. But I'm not feeling like I have to ground that in in religion. Is that? You know, that seems like, a, as a category, that seems like a real possibility to me. When I went out and read people who were arguing under the rubric, we can be good without God, they didn't take that strategy. So I would love to see that spelled out and see, does it hold water? Does it fly? Maybe it does. Like I said early on, I mean, I, I think it'd be great if it did. I mean, the more resources we have, the better. I'm not, there are some religious apologists who are like, I want to drive everyone to despair. So if if religion isn't the truth, we're going off a cliff. That's not what I'm after here. So I'd like to hear that spelled out. 
There was a term in the book, and I'm trying to remember it now, pragmatic functionalism yeah, or something Yeah, pragmatic like. functionalism. And you were criticizing it. Maybe mm-hmm. you can explain it here, but it was what I wanted to pull on that thread mm-hmm. and see if I could spin my ideas out of it and see. I, think, yeah. I feel like there's a lot of Aristotelian thought in it. Right. So the idea there is just like, okay, human beings can have different ways of life, different moral commitments, different kinds of societies. What are the outcomes for people and the world by the different ones. Like if we just ran, like if we could run these counterfactual experiments, we ran it this way, everyone was a selfish bastard, or we ran it that way, everyone was super altruistic. How would people's experience be? I think there's merit, because I'm friendly to Aristotle, I think there's merit in thinking about what are the what are the practical outcomes of this? What does it actually produce? Someone like Sam Harris believes, you know, we can just run the science and get it all figured out, and that'll tell us how to live. I'm skeptical of that kind of strong claim. I just think it's problematic. So I'm not trying to remove practical consequences of this. What I would push back on is say, first of all, you have to, ident- you have to identify your standards about what a good consequence will be. We can't just take the word good or happy for granted. We have to specify. And in the course of human history, a lot of different people have had different ideas about what good is. Some would say a good society and a good life is when everybody submits their individual self to the collective well-being. People keep their order in the hierarchy, uh, etc. Now, we would probably say, well, that's not good. And you might say, well, let's run that experiment and see how the experience is. But in the end, it's still kind of question-begging. Okay, what is the standard? What do you even count as a good, happy life in society. That's one pushback I want to offer, and that is what are we grounding our standards, our criteria of judgment even in? And people's experience and happiness can even be formed by their expectations. So if they're raised in a culture that says, well, when your people are defeated and you're dragged off as a slave, that's what it is, so get used to it. And I'm not saying those people are wonderfully happy or were, but people can radically adjust what they what their experience is based on what their expectations are. And Chris, I hear in your book more broadly kind of a long-term cultural worry that that if if these arguments are continued to be advanced, there's a there's a, a leg of the stool that's wobbly that isn't going to hold up if the culture becomes increasingly disconnected from uh, all the kind of cultural good that has been created by by religion. I'm curious about that, and specifically, I guess, if you could say a little bit more about your view of human nature. I'm not particularly worried for the next decade. I mean, things are not great in our culture and society as far as I'm concerned right now, but my real worry, if I have a worry, is longer term, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. And the kind, of, the kind of way that some people cash this out, I'm not totally comfortable with this, but the kind of way that some people will talk about this is civilizations build up moral bank accounts. They build up capital in their bank accounts from millennia of heritages. of, And it's not doesn't necessarily have to be just religious. It can also be non-religious philosophies, stoicism, whatever, which has had an important impact in the West. And then if you cut the source of funding, the source of deposits coming in, you can live a long time on the moral capital. You're not living on the interest. You're living on the capital. Eventually, it runs out if you're not replenishing it. This would be the strong version of the argument. I, I have mixed, mixed thoughts about it. But um, so, so if there's any worry, it's like, well, what's it going to be like down the road when people are much further distant from the religious sources that gave rise to historically the ideas of dignity and universalism and so on? When they start asking, well, why, why should I care about those people? Why should I 
why should I sacrifice myself for anyone beyond those who are going to affect me and mine? I think it's a legitimate worry. Another piece of that puzzle, though, is this. A lot of us, all of us sitting here and a lot of us listening here, we live in a pretty prosperous world. It's pretty comfortable. I know where I can get my coffee and so on. The real test of morality is not when things are comfortable. The real test of all this is when things get tough, if there's breakdown, if there's scarcity. My own view of the future is it's probably not going to be an, a utopian always progress and you know, like many, I'm deeply worried about global warming, and even if global warming turns out not to be as bad as some people say it is, I think there are many things to worry about in the future, technology, automation, et cetera, et cetera. So I wonder what kind of world that's going to be like and what kind of resources future generations are going to have, especially if they spend out the moral capital that's been built up. So obviously what's running in the background here is I do not have a particularly a positive view of human beings. I think we're capable of great positive things. I have a capacities view of this. We're capable of great positive things and great horrible things. But with the facts of scarcity in the world, the facts of our hyper sociability that make us tend toward kind of tribalism and homophily, we like stuff that's like us and not that's too different from us. I think all of that pulls in the direction of we need to be formed to be ready to connect with the other, to be ready to empathize, to be ready to sacrifice for what we believe is true and right and good and beautiful and not just what will serve my interests now. So, yeah, I do I, – I confess I do have a somewhat dismal view of human beings. What was the Coburn line you mentioned with our younger journalists? Yeah, today? so the, the musician Bruce Coburn, he has a line, never had a lot of faith in human beings, but sometimes we manage to shine. Lovely. One more from me and then I'll get out of the way. But you had also today in talking with a group of 16 younger journalists who were here in Washington, a comment about 1989 and 2001 and the pivot in terms of how many Americans see religion. I wonder if you might just explain that for us as well. Yeah, we were talking about Americans who identify as non-religious was pretty stable at 7% for, for as long as we ever measured it until 1991. And then it started shooting up and just really has doubled and it, we're up to 23 plus, maybe 25% now. So the question is why? There's a lot of factors. Everything's complicated. But one idea I floated, it's just a hypothesis, it's impossible to test, is that since the end of World War II, the main other for the United States, it was the Cold War set the frame and the main other was the commies and the commies were godless. And so to be an American in some sense meant even if you weren't religious, you were part of a team that believed in God and in God we trust and all this stuff. Cold War ended in 1991, the very year when non-religion identities started increasing. And then within 10 years, the major event to completely change the frame of how the world was structured, at least from the point of view of the United States and our leaders, was September 11. And so the new other became not godless, but a religion, a particular religion that was doing violence. And as I also explained, the vast majority of Americans are not religious because they are convinced of the truth of the doctrine. They're religious because they think religions help people be good and make the right choices, and it, it, it's almost this pragmatic functionalism. So when religion gets framed, at religion equals violence, which is what the new atheists, the, the four horsemen and such were saying, religions will always be violent. They always have propensity to violence then a lot of Americans will stop appreciating religion's value. If, if they buy that frame, it'll be like, well, religion's a problem now. So what I'm saying is in 1991, the old frame that's, that made America on the side of religion against the godless disappeared. 
And then within a fairly short period of time, that was replaced with religions are a threat to us. Religion is, is a threat. Not everyone interpreted that way. The president did interpret that way. It was very clear. It's a minority of Muslims. Most Muslims are great people, etc. But, but from a pretty successful cultural framing point of view, the other for America became threatening, crazy, fundamentalist, religious people. Chris, did I hear you correctly that just in that answer you were saying that most people are religious not because they believe it's true but because this is This is my sociological conclusion having interviewed hundreds and hundreds of religious people of all different ages. What do you think of that? Is that okay? Sociologically or personally? (laughs) Is is that okay in terms of your project of founding morality and a a, a robust longstanding morality? If, uh, If people embed their lives in religious traditions and institutions that come along with it, teachings and practices and liturgies and such and such that form them and their children, whether their personal motivations is everything the clergy people would like them to be, that still will have that effect that religion is forming them and informing public life, yes. So it's a kind of pragmatic functionalism in the form of religion then, isn't it? I'm, this is Well, we can separate this out at multiple levels in yeah. this. I mean, all of us probably would love to know the final truth, right? I mean, we, we're interested in philosophy. We're interested in ethics in a strong form. I also have a pragmatic interest in, like, society not deteriorating into a horrible... Whatever the truth is, that's why I say, I mean, I would love it if atheists had a great, had a great foundation for universalistic humanism because that would make me feel more secure about the future, whatever the truth was. So, yeah, I have a pragmatic interest in the game. I also have a sort of – I'm also a critical realist. So I'm a realist. I'm interested in knowing what really is reality. What's the truth about reality? But right. as a sociologist, I make these observations about America and, and why people are religious – People don't have to have the ideal motives and, and, and answers for religion to still influence them and have an impact on society. But if people are religious in part because there's something in them that wants to be good and this is the way in which they choose to express it, to articulate it, to uh, build resources around it, to raise their kids, then maybe I'm just going to suggest a more optimistic view of the future uh-huh. in which the causality doesn't run strictly from religion to people that there is something there is some truth to adam smith or to the idea of natural sentiments that is the causality runs in part from the sentiments to the religion although it has to be cultivated and developed and therefore the decline of religion isn't fatal that the underlying cause uh, the underlying material that we work with to build morality is still there we have to work with it but that's also true in religion is it not yeah the question is what do you have to work on it with so again, I'm not, I'm not arguing that if religion goes away, it's fatal. It's all over. The game's over. I'm arguing what makes sense and what will probably happen is a is a shift down from the high, very demanding standards of humanistic universalism, dignity, equality, benevolence, down to something like what I call more modest or more moderate morality, which is I take care of myself. I take care of my own. I, 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 I can be self-interested in light, enlightened self-interest. I can say, well, I really need to think ahead about how this could affect me in the future. It's not selfishness by any stretch, but it's not the high demanding standard. Okay. Can I throw my uh, – th- this is my hardball. Yeah. Um, go for it. I feel like what you're offering in the form of a religious answer to why we should be moral – 
is the intellectual equivalent of, I think of it in terms of Medicare for all. That's my model. So Bernie Sanders says, people don't like their health insurance. They don't like premiums. They don't like copays. They don't like deductibles. Bernie Sanders comes along and says, I'm going to get rid of all that. You're not going to have to pay any of that. It's all free. And that's great. It sounds terrific. As long as you forget the part where you're going to pay all of that in the form of taxes, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. So here we have all these atheists trying to construct morality piecemeal, a little bit at a time from whatever they can scrounge together in their construction of their idea of what rationality is. And you are taking, you're criticizing and pointing the limits of that. And I agree with that. But I'm asking, what is the alternative to it? And Mm -hmm. if the alternative is religion, now as a skeptic, I feel like I'm being asked either to buy into these various piecemeal arguments that they're making or to buy the reality is if I'm going to religion and if I'm going to say I'm doing this because this is all objectively true, that God exists, that Jesus Christ is the son of God, that he died for my sins. And now, now I've got a whole lot of stuff I've got to buy as a package mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in order to – and I grant you all that stuff follows. There's, a, there's a one line in the book that I really loved because it's, a, it's parenthetical. You were talking about religious ideas. And you said that these do present good reasons why knaves, people who are trying to cheat around rules, should constrain their wrongdoing, reasons that are unavailable to atheists. And you put in parentheses in that sentence, when their premises are granted. Yeah, when their premises are granted. And I felt like that's the whole ballgame is granting those premises. So I feel, I'm just going to say I am a skeptic. I am not an atheist, but I'm a little bit of an agnostic, but I'm very skeptical of buying the theistic yeah, package yeah. here. And of course, that's a huge limitation of the religious grounds of this. You have to buy the metaphysics. You can't pretend to buy them and have it work. Like you got to buy into it or not. So that's a major limitation. So to be clear, based on the first thing you said, I feel like my book succeeded with you. Like I got you to say, these are oversold claims. They don't really work. We need something else. To me, that's the success of the book. I'm not trying to corner everybody to back into religion and buy the whole package. My sort of approach to society is I'm a pluralist. I'd like to have lots of difference out there in society. I think it makes for a better society more interesting. So I'm happy to have atheists around, and I'm happy to have good arguments with atheists. Epistemologically, I'm kind of a Hegelian, whereas I think we learn better, we refine our ideas, we make progress in knowledge and understanding through virtuous conflicts, through disagreements, and, and then we get somewhere. So from my point of view, if I set what I understand you to have said in that framework, I think we're now we're ready for the synthesis from the thesis and the antithesis. Namely, okay, so if the, if the version that we've gotten from, the, new, from the, the various kinds of new atheists so far isn't going to fly, I mean, it really isn't defensible, and there's a set of people who are just not going to buy into religious, the whole package, then let's spell out, like, let's hear it. Let's sort it out. What is it about the quasi-transcendent, the, however you think it could be articulated? Let's get, a better, let's get a better account going, and let's think about it. So what's your account? No, you're the one who said you could do it. <laughs> you're the one, it's not me. You're, if I had to give an account, if I had to give an account, I would say let's run uh, secularized neo-Aris. If we're going to be a secular society, like really if religion's going away, a secularized neo-Aristotelianism. But I heard you saying you think there's something better than that that could be pulled off. So now the burden's on you to, to, uh, to, to articulate or at, least, or at least get other people who can do a good job to sort of put it out there. Okay, you're making me pull my notes out. <laughs> <laughs> we got Sam Harris on speed dial. Hang on just a second. <laughs> I actually wrote this down. How do I describe this? 
that I have down here. I like the pragmatic functionalism. I like the naturalism. I think from what I heard you say, I think what what needs to be developed out is this sense of out of our human nature, there's something about our amazing – capacities that is emergent, that comes, it's not just the sum of the parts, some new thing comes out that has to do with consciousness or understanding or dignity or something comes out of what we are as as embodied creatures, as the kind we are, that gives rise reasonably and logically and rationally and explicably to something beyond self-interest, something strong beyond self-interest, whether it's dignity or common humanity. Yeah. I think I think that that would be the way it would have to go. I actually have a whole other book called What is a Person that argues that our human personhood is an emergent property of our bodies functioning in, or, in material and social relationships. And it, it relies strongly on this idea of emergence. And I make the argument that dignity itself is an emergent fact. It's not a human invention. It's a fact of human personhood, and it's emergent. Interesting, too, don't you think, to consider how, like, the UDHR came out Sort of post Holocaust or you know, post war, you know, the idea sometimes sometimes out of the ashes comes right. uh, a new clarion statement. Right, right, and people right. talk about that in pluralism, where you have that happening in the military because of the challenge, or you have that after a fire. Or yeah, that's a, a great point. But maybe it's just that I'm an intellectual. Okay, but I always want to have. Okay, we can start off with a reaction. Oh my God, that was horrible. We can't do that. But what I want that followed up with is, and why is that the What's case? Real? Yeah. So early in the 20th century, everyone was excited about eugenics. I mean, the, the sociologists were like, "What we should do eugenics. And then World War II kind of put an end to that. But I've never heard anybody sort of sort out, why were we so excited? And then why do we change our mind? And why is it that our current commitments couldn't – I'm not promoting eugenics, but it's just as a rational exercise. Why is it that our current commitments take that off the table? I just want to hear the reasons, well, what, the what arguments. About, what about the pragmatic functionalist explanation? Look at the evil that was led to by this idea, by fascism, so, by communism, by anti-Semitism. Yeah, so, that, so, well, again, I want to push back on what do you mean by evil and where did that word, how did that word get into our universe? But uh, other than that, I would say that you could respond by saying, well, they did it the wrong way. I mean, they screwed it all up and they were authoritarian. They had the wrong political. We today, now that we've learned those lessons, we could employ eugenics to have a much better world, much more happiness, much greater well-being if we select it on, and we know evolution is true, if we select it on that which will produce a better humanity in the future. I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying <laughs> I want to hear – I want to hear – I want these things spelled out and not just have gut-level, very real, but gut-level sort of reactions against – I guess I would argue that what can ground us is – the is the past and the the legacy that we inherit so that what we are always making progress and we are always ideally constrained by some idea that was so we are progressive we're conservative in take the american constitution we said all men are created equal we didn't mean men of all color we didn't mean women there were we didn't mean people without property the same way people with property but over time as we articulated that idea it got better it became more universal and at the same time, it was grounded in an original statement that kept it from going mm-hmm. nuts, right? So I guess I would argue that in history itself, possibly constrained by some human natural sentiments, we have a way of grounding things from going completely off the rails. Mm-hmm. Not strictly, 
mm-hmm. not not mm-hmm. in perhaps in a rationally compelling way, but the way in fact we have always learned. And I think actually there are a couple pla- just a couple of paragraphs in the book where you talk about the history of Judaism and Christianity. And I look at those paragraphs and I was like, this to me, these the history of of Judaism and Christianity is not the history of something that was true at the beginning. It is the history of a gradually articulated truth. Mm-hmm. And so what made the morality that we have today that you believe, and I agree, is, is so important, if not necessary, is not just that something true was written down a long time ago, but that over time we articulated and that process can go on within religion and without religion. Do you think it would be a good thing if religious traditions continued strong and healthy into the future as long as they weren't trying to take over societies, if we lived in pluralistic societies? Or do you think it'd be better if religion went by the wayside? I agree it would be better. Which Uh, would be better? It would be better to continue them Mm. and to continue to do what we've done, which is to develop and refine and improve them. Mm -hmm. I'm on board with that. (laughs) And there, ladies and gentlemen, we have agreement. Faith Angle exists to open connections between leading journalists, scholars, and clerics. Thanks for listening.